beyond the human galaxy, beyond the range of man-made spacecraft and astrotelepathy, lies the unspeakable cold of the intergalactic void. Few have ventured into this realm, and none have ever returned. It is the great barrier that divides galaxy from galaxy, a place where time and space conspire to hold the worlds apart with inconceivable distances. Yet the void is no longer empty. An immeasurably ancient and implacable intelligence moves through the cold and the darkness, its many eyes fixed on the distant, glittering lights of our galaxy. The great devourer moves between the stars and hungers for the flesh of all whom lie before it. This great organism, this monstrous entity, is known as the Tyranid race. Even by naming the Great Devourer, civilizations betray their ignorance. Every thought and action, every spark of life in the Tyranid race, is bound and interlinked into a single mind, a single great entity that stretches over light years of space and is controlled by the immortal hive mind. A billion times, a billion Tyranids stand at the rim of the galaxy, yet each one is no more than a single cell in the living body of the hive mind, the devourer of worlds. The Great Devourer The Tyranids are a race of alien predators that are invading the galaxy from the void beyond its edges. Like swarming insects falling upon precious crops, they devour all before them, consuming all life upon each world in their path, and leaving nothing but airless rocks in their wake. They are a threat to every sentient species in the galaxy and their numbers are ever-growing. For centuries now, the Magi Biologists and Ordo Xenos of the Imperium have sought to make sense of the Tyranid threat. It speaks volumes that with the galaxy now in the grip of the Third Tyrannic War, and with humanity having fought more battles against these rapacious aliens than can be tallied, these luminaries remain bewildered and horrified in equal measure. It is clear that the Tyranid's technology is entirely biological, and far in advance of anything humanity has encountered in all its long millennia of conquest. Their war beasts are armored in chitinous plates, or possessed of natural defenses such as chameleonic abilities or veiling clouds of exhaled spores. Tyranid guns, blades, transport craft, even void ships, all are living beings, many taking the form of grotesque symbiotes crafted to their host creature for use in battle. 
The ammunition fired by tyranid weapons is similarly organic. Be it voracious chitin armored beetles, gouts of concentrated acid, or bioplasma, armor-piercing shard beasts, or eruptions of bioelectricity. From blades that gnaw the flesh of their victims to tailored toxin spores, weaponized parasites, and even stranger weapons, the Tyranids display an infinite capacity for turning the mechanisms of life to the task of spreading death. This speaks to one of the few other certainties humanity possesses regarding the Tyranids. Their entire race seems fashioned solely for war. It has been observed that few individual Tyranids display anything more than the most rudimentary sentience. Rather, each Tyranid appears to be but a single cell of an infinitely vast galactic superorganism. Mankind has dubbed this guiding presence the Hive Mind. As far as the Magi biologists can determine, it is the Hive Mind that drives the Tyranid swarms ever onwards towards the galactic core. Through the synaptic control web generated by specialized node beasts amidst the Tyranid ranks, the influence of the Hive Mind stretches across battlefields, worlds, and even the vastness of the Void itself. Wherever the grotesque bioships of the Hive Fleet swarm to attack, the presence of the Hive Mind moves with them and allows them to hunt and fight with supernatural synchronicity. What precisely the hive mind is, mankind remains ignorant to. Attempts have been made to tame the fear of the unknown by claiming that this alien sentience is a god, a galactic meta-predator, a gestalt psychic presence, and countless other, even stranger, explanations. Yet the truth is that the hive mind is as far beyond the understanding of the galaxy's sentient races as they are beyond the comprehension of the cattle they farm and butcher. This, it seems, is all that biological life represents to the hive mind. Not equals to be communicated with, but simple prey to be found and then devoured. Since the first Tyranid Hive Fleet was encountered, the number of these alien invaders have increased at an alarming rate. More and more Hive Fleets surge from the extragalactic void, each displaying new and nightmarish adaptations and horribly inventive methods of predation. They coil and probe like the tendrils of some unimaginably vast monster. They push in from the fringes, drive up through the galactic plane, and crush and destroy everything they touch. The first warning that most worlds have of the Tyranid's approach is the shadow in the warp. This psychic signal rolls ahead of the high fleets 
like some smothering metaphysical fog bank. Its nullifying psychic static chokes off astropathic communication, leaving worlds isolated in the face of the onrushing swarm. It worries at minds and souls alike, spreading unreasoning paranoia and fear amongst the prey. Psychers are the worst affected, for their strange senses are far more susceptible to this insidious assault. Should they seek to employ their powers while engulfed by the shadow in the warp, there's every chance they will be driven mad or even slain by the chittering alien cacophony that overloads their minds. Then come the Tyranids themselves. Hive ships slide from the darkness like oceanic predators rising to feed. They smash aside the defense platforms and warships that seek to hold them back, settling in orbit above the prey worlds and disgorging untold trillions of warrior organisms to begin the hunt. At first, the prey fight back. Defense lasers scouring spore craft and winged monsters from the skies aircraft spiraling amidst the descending predators with their guns blazing. On the ground, staunch warriors man their battlements and unleash storms of fire to reduce attacking Tyranids to hillocks of charred corpses. Yet, as more waves attack, and yet more, the guns begin to fall silent. Aircraft and war engines are destroyed one by one torn apart or overrun, and their crews devoured. The barricades fall. Defenders become screaming, fleeing prey. Under the influence of the microscopic tyranid spores, even the biosphere of the planet turns against the prey, choking them with toxins and dissolving them into raw biomass ready to be devoured. Only once victory is assured do the Tyranid begin to feed. Raw biological gruel flows up vast feeding tubes to replenish the waiting hive ships, who suckle at the world like fat ticks until nothing remains but a lifeless orb to be left hanging cold and dead in the void. First Contact the first recorded encounter between the Imperium and the Tyranids came on the world of Tyran Primus in 745 M41. It was the conflict that would see humanity put a name to this new alien menace and saw the beginning of Hive Fleet Behemoth's rampage through Imperial space. Yet it was not the only early contact between the Tyranids and their prey. It is difficult to say with any degree of certainty when humanity first encountered the Tyranid menace. Some records suggest that humanity and also the Eldari of Craftworld Ayanden discovered a bizarre Tyranid megastructure in the Tiamat system on the jungle world of Xiaphoria as early as M35. 
this edifice is said to have spanned a continent and to have projected from its mass of chitin and encephalitic tissue a horrifically powerful psychic signal that drove the Eldari into fatal seizures. Rumor has it among the Ordo Xenos that this structure, and others like it, remain to this day, seemingly raised by the strange beasts of High Fleet Tiamat, for some as yet undisclosed purpose. Then there are the ominous tales from the Heliken sector in M36, speaking of nightmarish winged horrors that match Ordo Xenos intelligence on High Fleet Ouroboros. The supposedly indigenous gene stealers of the moon of Mgarl have also been discovered in the years since to be vanguard organisms for the onrushing Tyranid High Fleets. It is believed that the Tau Empire may have battled the toxic swarms of High Fleet Gorgon for centuries. Who can say, meanwhile, what insidious forerunners of the Tyranid threat have been encountered by races such as the Necrons, not to mention more minor or isolated alien empires. Those entirely devoured by the Tyranid menace do not survive to tell their tales, after all. Yet for those few humans both privileged enough to possess knowledge of the Tyranids and unfortunate enough to seek to counter their threat, the death of Tyran Primus remains the first known contact with this ghastly new foe. The first clue of the horror soon to fall upon Tyran Primus was discovered by Imperial explorators. In performing a census of the worlds near to the far-flung outpost of Tyran Primus, they discovered entire planets scoured of all biological life. Not even the simplest bacteria survived on these denuded rocks. In truth, what the explorators had found were the first worlds to be devoured by High Fleet Behemoth after its long and lifeless sojourn through the intergalactic void. Thus far, it had only consumed worlds without sentient life to defend them, for its reserves were depleted from years of hibernation. Soon enough, it would channel the newly absorbed biomass into vast swarms of war beasts ready to begin the invasion proper. Yet the explorators lacked the context to perceive the peril implicit in this ominous mystery. The Tyran outpost dutifully continued to file reports of dead worlds, and the warning went unheeded. That the Tyran outpost had any chance to prepare for the onslaught was due to sheer chance. A returning survey ship encountered a vast cloud of unidentified objects on the edge of the Tyran system. When those same objects turned out to be strange biological minds, the survey ship fought its way clear of the converging cloud and limped back to Tyran Primus bearing its dire warning. A handful of days later, the invasion began. 
commanded by Adeptus Mechanicus Magos Varnak, the outpost of Tyran Primus was no easy prey. Nestled in an ancient chain of volcanic islands, the base was fortified to resist the fearsome storms and beasts of Tyran's wild oceans. Moreover, it boasted a substantial garrison of Adeptus Mechanicus and Astra Militarum soldiery, several squadrons of fighter craft, and four huge orbital defense lasers set deep into Ceramite silos. Sheathed in void shields, these huge installations were further supported by a formidable network of gun emplacements and Proteus-class bunkers. It was a defensive strength that had seen Tyrion Primus hold off more than its share of alien and heretical assaults over the centuries. Against the onslaught of High Fleet Behemoth, however, the outpost's defenses would be found wholly wanting. Tyrion Primus's defense lasers opened fire the moment the first alien ships made orbit. For more than an hour, the storm-wracked skies were split by incandescent blasts of the base's gunners desperately fended off the invaders. Then, just as the cooling systems of the defense lasers began to glow white and overheat, the invaders withdrew. Magos Varnak ordered his small fleet to harry the withdrawing vessels, but this strategy proved folly. Penetrating the spore cloud masking the alien fleet, the pursuing vessels discovered that fewer than a dozen bioships had been destroyed out of a fleet of several thousand. Having lured the cruisers away from Tyran, the void swarm fell upon the Imperial vessels with a vengeance. The slaughter that followed was terrible. One vessel after another torn apart by vast tendrils, or swept clear of life by boarding swarms of gene-stealers, rippers, and other monstrous bioforms. With the Imperium's cruisers destroyed, the High Fleet returned to Tyran Primus. Thousands of Tyrannocytes descended on the world. Though the laser defenses destroyed many, Countless hundreds more crashed into the seas. The waters thrashed and boiled as the invaders burst from their pods and tore their way through the ferocious inhabitants of Tyran's oceans, before scaling the outpost walls. At first, the disciplined volleys of the Imperial Guard drove the creatures back. Officers bellowed orders through the pouring rain. Torrents of firepower scythed through the alien ranks. Wave after wave of hormigons and gene stealers were torn apart, their corpses choking the rain lashed killing zones between the bastions. Thunderbolt fighters darted through the lightning lashed skies, blasting apart incoming pods with precision fire before turning to intercept new targets. Then, the northern defense laser fell silent. 
thousands of gargoyles had thrown themselves into its throat, clogging the massive beam projectors. Moments later, the eastern defense laser ceased firing as an enormous carnifex rammed through the reinforced steel wall, trampled over the defenders, and hurled itself at the coolant lines. One by one, the thunderbolts tumbled from the skies, engines choked by spores, cockpits torn apart by shrieking harpies. As more and more of the defense network went dark, the tyrannocytes began to fall into the base itself. An hour later, the Tyran outpost was as good as lost. The bastions were overrun or destroyed, the defense lasers silent. Even the guardsmen of Katachan men and women who had reckoned themselves among the most stalwart of warriors abandoned their post and fled into the driving rain in search of an escape that did not exist. Here and there, pockets of resistance still held out under the watchful gaze of a brave or foolhardy officer, but one by one these were extinguished. Only the command bunker remained, and its walls began to crack under the impact of massive blows. Through the few functioning displays, Varnock saw the flood of aliens rampaging through his base, destroying everything they found. Finally, the adamantine gate of the bunker crashed inwards, and the Tyranids poured into the command complex. Guardsmen and Skatari fought back with flamers and phosphex, but aliens swarmed through the searing fires and hacked their way onwards. As Hormagons poured into the command center, Varnak whispered a final prayer to the Omnissiah and triggered a switch, sending a data codex plummeting into the depths of the base. This codex would be Tyran Primus's enduring legacy, for it would be recovered many months later Inquisitor Cryptman, a man who would dedicate his life to opposing the Tyranid menace. But for Cryptman's arrival, Tyran Primus's fate might have gone unnoticed by the wider Imperium for long years. He found a blasted and sterile planet, unrecognizable as the teeming ocean world it had once been. The planet had been sucked dry. Every scrap of vegetation and every drop of water consumed. As Cryptman reviewed the autologs contained within the data codex, the full horror of Tyran's downfall was revealed. Wasting not another moment, the Inquisitor set forth to warn the rest of the galaxy of the oncoming horror from beyond the stars. A horror Cryptman named Tyranids, but the world they had consumed. The tyrannic wars had begun. Hive fleets. Even a single hive fleet is a terrible threat, and many such tendrils of the hive mind now push their way deeper into settled space. 
Worse still, one of the greatest strengths of the Tyranids is their ability to learn and adapt to the tactics of their prey. As more and more hive fleets search to attack, so the hive mind learns ever more swiftly how best to make war upon the galaxy. Though they vary enormously in size, composition, appearance, and predatory method, most Tyranid hive fleets have some key characteristics in common. All consist of a number of hive ships, each a vast, void-going organism, sheathed in feet-thick chitinous armor and with a fleshy hide adapted to shrug off the killing cold of space. Though a near-infinite variety of physical forms have been observed amongst hive ships, most boast an array of trailing tendrils and hooked talons large enough to coil around miles-long warships and crush them to sparking wreckage. Immense beaks, fanged maws, and colossal feeder probusci are much in evidence equally well suited to consuming the harvested biomass of a dying world or devouring a captured space fortress. Yet for all their vast and monstrous might, it is the seething hordes of warrior organisms born within the organ chambers of each hive ship that represent the greatest threat to their prey worlds. Those few brave souls who have trodden the capillary tunnels and pulsating cavities of a hive ship and returned alive tell of monstrous bioscapes. Endless waves of warrior organisms are spawned from within the bubbling organ sacs of their reproductive chambers. Arcing bioelectric currents leap between synapse nodes the size of electropylons, or wreathe the dormant forms of Norn queens even now awakening to command the invasion swarms from afar. Waves of hissing sentry beasts scurry along dripping intestinal tunnels and tear through membranous walls to fall upon the invaders from all sides. At their backs come hulking tervagons, unsleeping brood beasts that spawn ever more hunter organisms from their grotesquely swollen thoraxes. But worst of all is the sight of endless swarms of war beasts, from lesser hormagons, termagons, and gargoyles, to the immense and nightmarish biotitans held in biostasis and promising apocalypse for whatever world they are vented upon. Even a single such hive ship has the power to tear its way through a flotilla of defense monitors before sowing an evasion swarm onto the surface of a prey world. Yet, hive ships rarely travel alone. When an entire living fleet of these nightmarish void monsters descends, they and their endless spawn can strip a planetary system of life in a matter of weeks. 
In their ongoing attempts to codify the Tyranid threat, and in doing so, perhaps to diminish its omnipresent terror, Imperial Xenobiologists have named many high fleets. It has been observed that each such distinct bioflotilla exhibits certain unifying traits that mark its hive ships and warrior organisms out from those of other high fleets and serve to characterize the horror of its onslaught. Coloration is one such unifying factor. The creatures of hive fleet behemoth for example, tend towards hides of blue and mauve, while those of Hivefleet Kraken are blood red, and those of the ubiquitous Hivefleet Leviathan are most often purple. What significance such unifying coloration has to a single-minded species like the Tyranids is unclear. Theories abound of everything from instinctual recognition between bioforms of different fleets to predatory terror tactics, or even attempts to confuse and mesmerize prey with shifting patterns displayed upon chitinous armor plates. Each high fleet also displays distinctive hunting patterns and strategies. Almost as though each were an attempt by the hive mind to refine different methods of predating the galaxy's sentient life forms. The warrior organisms of Hive Fleet Jormungandr, for example, favor subterranean assault and deploy immense swarms of tunneling serpentine bioforms to strike at their victims from below. Hive Fleet Gorgon by comparison, is infamous for the toxic spore clouds and bio-warfare agents it unleashes in battle. Its prey forced to fight not only the tentacular abominations tearing through their ranks, but also the microscopic tyranid spores seeking to clog their lungs and dissolve their organs from within. Other high fleets have been observed deploying ground-shaking masses of living tanks, sky-darkening swarms of winged monsters, elusive broods of chameleonic apex predators, endless tides of expendable war beasts, and countless other strategic permutations. Many high fleets also exhibit a remarkable ability to learn and adapt from each defeat, a tactic that serves desperate defenders well on one battlefield may prove utterly worthless on the next, as the Tyranids manifest some rapidly adapted countermeasure. Veteran warriors confidently deploying tank-busting rounds that previously saw the larger Tyranid monsters burst like sacks of offal stare in horror as those same shells rebound from newly thickened armor carapaces. Wings of bombers soar overhead to rain death on the swarms below, only to discover that this time, the hive mind has spawned flocks of winged bioforms that fall upon their aircraft and tear them apart. 
tailored gene toxins that dissolved tyranids into twitching soup in a previous engagement are found to be utterly ineffective against the altered body chemistry of the next wave of war beast the hive mind has hurled in. Most unsettling of all is when such adaptations begin to manifest preemptively, not only on different battlefields, but amongst these swarms of entirely separate hive fleets. How the Tyranids are able to communicate such hard-won lessons is unclear, but that they can suggests nightmarish possibilities to the increasingly beleaguered prey races. One of the most insidious aspects of the Tyranid threat is how hard it is to eradicate even a single one of its tendrils. Should a high fleet be decisively defeated, either planet side or in the void, some portion of its strength almost always escapes, either running on primal instinct or guided by the hive mind. Organisms go to ground or flee the theater of war altogether. For a single world, this can mean fresh nightmares when the foe thought defeated rises up again from hidden lairs, sometimes years or even centuries after the original Tyranid attack. On a wider scale, this phenomenon is even more problematic. Should a tendril of a high fleet be shattered by battle or catastrophe, its survivors become splinter fleets, lesser echoes of the former threat, small enough to slip away into the void and regather their strength. In time, a splinter fleet will attack again, having devoured enough biomass to replenish its ranks and often benefiting from the lessons of its primogenitor's defeat. The Shadow in the Warp Settling like a vast and terrible pall across countless worlds, the Shadow in the Warp heralds the coming of the Tyranid High Fleets. It is a nightmarish phenomenon that, whether by accident or design, has proved a cripplingly effective weapon against many of the galaxy's sentient races. The warp is a strange dimension of ever-shifting energies that lies beyond the skin of real space. It is a churning and mysterious infinity amidst whose currents the passions, obsessions, sorrows, and joys of all living things find reflection. The warp has been both boon and bane to the galaxy's sentient races. It is a source of near-limitless power for those who can harness it. It is the ocean from which flows the gifts of all psychers. It is also the means by which humanity spread out across the stars and by which the Imperium of Man achieves interstellar travel and communication to this day. Yet, 
it is also the realm of timeless and malevolent sentiences, born from the primal emotions of all living things and hell-bent on consuming reality. It is because of these hostile entities, known as demons, that extreme caution must be exercised when dealing with the warp. However, there is no alternative but to take the risk. Without using the energies of the Sea of Souls, each settled system becomes an isolated candle flame amidst the endless darkness, just waiting to be snuffed. It is this helpless state of isolation that the shadow in the warp imposes upon the tyranid's prey. The phenomenon itself is a smothering psychic signal that surrounds the high fleets, extending vast distances from them in all directions. Though even races as advanced as the ancient Eldari remain unable to explain how, the shadow inveigles its way into mortal senses and interferes with their connection to the warp. For even the most dull-witted of creatures, this is an unsettling experience and causes heightened anxiety, paranoia, and panic to spread throughout prey populations. A sense of all-pervading dread goads frightened mobs to violence and sees doomsayers take to the streets even before the first warnings of the Tyranid's approach are received. It is amongst psychically attuned beings, however, that the shadow in the warp is felt the worst. Human psychers, orc weird boys, and virtually the entire Eldari race are amongst such unfortunates, their psychic sensitivity rendering them dangerously vulnerable to the shadow's insidious effects. Some have described the phenomenon as a numbing blanket of static that fills their thoughts and makes it hard even to think or speak. To others, it is the chittering and squealing of a billion nameless horrors, the endless scraping of talons across their minds, or the onset of existential dread so acute that it is all they can do to keep breathing beneath its paw. Those attempting to actively employ psychic powers while engulfed by the shadow and the warp are hit hardest of all. Even to access their gifts at such times requires extreme effort, and those who try are as likely to be driven mad or slain by explosive cranial hemorrhage as to manifest even the weakest flicker of power. Crucially, astropaths attempting to send distress calls out to the wider Imperium find their mental cries choked off, more often than not painfully dying before they can force anything out through the smothering psychic blanket. Navigators are equally afflicted. Their third eyes are blinded and their minds overwhelmed by the shadow 
so that attempts to guide evacuation craft to safety or warships to the rescue of beleaguered worlds ends in disaster and death. It is thanks to the shadow in the warp that most Imperial worlds beset by the Tyranids must fight alone, cut off from aid and unable even to scream. Nor are humans the only victims of this phenomenon, for most branches of the Eldari race, merely being in proximity to the Tyranids brings torment that they must struggle to ignore if they are even to stand a chance to fight back. Moreover, the precognitive psychic gifts upon which their dwindling races relies are all but useless once the shadow on the warp settles about them. Warp sorcery falters as easily as more sanctioned psychic powers. Even, even the servants of the Dark Gods howling in powerless fury as the Tyranids descend upon them. Only truly psychically inactive races, such as the Tau or Necrons, have less to fear from the shadow. But even then, the insidious hive mind has methods by which it can weaponize its gestalt will against them to claim victory. It is unclear precisely how Tyranid war beasts manifest powers that echo the psychic abilities of the varied races they prey upon. Yet the longer the high fleets drive their tendrils into the galaxy, and the more of their swarms that emerge from the outer darkness of the void, the more the Tyranids have been observed adapting ever more bioforms whose abilities do just that. Some xenobiologists postulate that these creatures are siphoning warp energy in a controlled manner, wholly removed from anything achieved by any other known life form. Others believe that it's the synaptic energies of the hive mind itself that are being channeled, crackling through the encephalitic synapse tissues of the tyranids before being unleashed in hissing blasts of lethal energy, projected as shimmering force fields, amplified into sanity-shredding psychic screams, or employed to drive lesser swarm beasts into frantic killing fury. For those facing the Tyranids, such academic theorizing rings hollow. It matters only that the Tyranids are able to employ a ghastly range of apparently psychic abilities to tear apart the minds and bodies of their prey, seemingly with ease. Behemoth, First Tyrannic War Behemoth was the first high fleet recognized by the Imperium of Man. After annihilating the outpost on Tyran Primus, it thundered on through settled space, carving a direct line towards the ultramarine stellar empire of Ultramar. Driven on by a primal hunger it seemed unable to fully control, the High Fleet appeared as unstoppable as it was bestially unsubtle. It was only thanks to the effort of Inquisitor Kripman 
who followed in High Fleet Behemoth's wake, that warning reached Ultramar ahead of the Tyranid Menace. The Ultramarines gathered virtually the entire strength of their chapter to meet the Xenos onslaught. They marshaled the mighty defense regiments of Ultramar and the strength of entire Void Fleets to their banner. Still, it was to prove barely enough to halt Behemoth's rampage. The Tyranids overran one world after another, consuming biomass and redoubling their ranks as they drove toward the Ultramarine's chapter planet of Macrag. The idyllic garden world of Prandium was stripped bare. The caverns of Koth became bloody charnel houses. One slaughter followed another. Yet it was at Macrag itself that the fate of the first tyrannic war would be decided. Here, chapter master Marnius Calgar led his warriors in a masterful campaign doing all they could to resist the High Fleet's attack waves and bleed away its strength. Calgar himself was sorely wounded by the monstrous bioform known as the Swarm Lord during the Battle of Cold Steel Ridge, and for a time it appeared that High Fleet Behemoth would consume all before it. Eventually, a puissant ambush performed by the Ultramarines, mauled Void Fleet, and the newly arrived ships of Battlefleet Tempestus saw the High Fleet shattered above the ring world of Circe. Meanwhile, on the surface of Macrag, the Tyranid swarms were finally defeated by the unyielding resistance of the Ultramarines garrisoning the planet's polar fortresses. Yet the victory came at a terrible cost to the defenders. The Ultramarines' precious first company were slain to the last by the ferocious onslaught of High Fleet Behemoth. It was a wound the Ultramarines would not soon recover from. Splinters of High Fleet Behemoth scattered from Macrag and continued to bedevil Ultramar and the wider Imperium to this day. They are characterized by a brutish lack of subtlety, quite at odds with the cunning of more recently arrived tendrils. Those who have fought against this high fleet and somehow survived report hulking masses of heavily armored war beasts such as Carnifexes and Tyrannifexes, much in evidence supported by lumbering bio-artillery and teeming swarms of lesser beasts. These living fortresses stampede across the land and smash headlong into whatever bars their path. Wave upon bludgeoning wave is unleashed by the brutish-looking hive ships in orbit, the hive mind seeking simply to smash its prey to their knees with its clubbing blows before finally delivering the Coupe de Gras and beginning its victory feast. Invasion Swarms A Tyranid attack is a harrowing spectacle to behold. 
the skies darkening with roiling toxic clouds, and the descending shapes of hundreds of thousands of tyrannocytes containing brood upon brood of tyranids. Vast swarms of ravenous monsters flow across the land, slaughtering all in their path. Yet amidst all the horror and chaos, there is an insidious pattern to be observed. While every hive fleet displays its own predatory methods and instinctive tactics, most invade and eventually consume prey worlds in roughly the same manner. This can be seen in the strategies employed by successive tyrannid attack waves and the spawning of different bioforms in response to the condition of the defenders and their world and in the shifting tactics employed by the Tyranid swarms, both planet-side and in the void above. The nightmare begins with probing attacks intended to test and undermine the prey world's defenses. Vanguard organisms, some of which may have lurked upon the planet for months or even years before the attack, suddenly go on the defensive. Lictors and gene-stealers act as saboteurs and assassins, disrupting command channels and supply chains with their attacks or spreading terror amongst the prey populace. At the same time, waves of biological invasion craft rain down from on high. Many are inevitably shot down by battery fire or combat aircraft but more hit the planet's surface and split open to disgorge expendable invasion swarms. Driven on by synapse creatures such as Tyranid warriors, Turvagons, and Hive tyrants, chitinous tides of Termagons and Hormagons fling themselves at the enemy's defenses. What resistance they can overwhelm, they do tearing apart armored columns, fleeing for safety, and butchering garrisons trapped behind their own defense lines. Yet this is not the primary purpose of the first waves. Supported from above by thousand-strong flocks of gargoyles, the first waves allow the hive mind to corral the prey, to exhaust their ammunition and spirit, and to test where their defenses are staunchest. With the battle lines firmly drawn, the nature of the next invasion swarm adapts dependent on the resistance the hive mind has met thus far. If the prey hide within fortified compounds or have taken to subterranean complexes, the follow-up waves include vast tunneling swarms of raveners, tyrgons, and molochs. They may also see an upsurge in number of living tank analogs, such as carnifixes or excurines, ready to pummel especially formidable defenses into ruin. Should the prey prove resistant in the air, the hive mind hurls in flocks of harpies, hive crows, and monstrous harridans to smash the foe from the sky. Prey who seek to fight a more metaphysical war 
may be met with waves of nerothropes and monstrous maliceptors. While those able to shrug off more direct assaults may be undermined by the toxic emanations of venomthropes and toxicrines. One by one, the surviving bastions of the prey are toppled, worn down through attrition or destroyed in mighty conflicts. Their armies fall. Where the staunchest resistant is met, the hive mind may even deploy the colossal forms of bio-titans such as the Hierophant or the Hierodul abominations, quite capable of toppling even orc gargants or the god machines of the Adeptus Titanicus. Gradually, the fires of battle gutter as what was a war of resistance becomes a cruel game of cat and mouse, the last surviving defenders seeking to fight back or to escape. Yet by now, the strategies of the hive mind have shifted again, and new bioforms begin to appear amidst the changing landscape of the tortured world. Unbeknown to the defenders, Another war has raged unseen alongside their own. It is a conflict fought on a microscopic level. For even as their first invasion swarms assail the planet's defenders, so the hive ships also seed its atmosphere with rolling clouds of inimical spores that set to work perverting the biosphere. By the time the prey armies have been defeated, the planet's very biology has also been overthrown and harnessed to the Tyranid's foul purposes. Gruesome spore chimneys of flesh and chitin thrust up from the world's heaving surface. Alongside foul sporocysts dropped from orbit, these bioforms pump out ever denser toxic clouds that hasten the subsumption of the planet's biosphere. Bubbling digestion pools yawn wide, grotesque open guts the size of lakes into which raw biomatter is deposited to be broken down. Pulsing synapse nodes sprout like colossal fungi, amplifying the influence of the hive mind and strengthening the grip of the shadow in the warp. Stranger and more nightmarish biostructures erupt around or amidst the few holdouts of the prey, towering talons and lashing nests of tendrils that rip down fortifications and spread parasitic infestations. Meanwhile, the feeder beasts of the invasion swarms are hard at work. From the start of the invasion, Swarms of these simple organic eating machines, known as rippers, have undulated across the land, devouring the wounded and dead alike. Now, trillions of the awful creatures sweep across entire continents, cramming their gullets to bursting point before slithering into the digestion pools to be rendered down along with the biomass they have harvested. At the same time, horospexes lumber across the land, swallowing whole any prey that defies them and gorging on the fallen, 
before vomiting their immense meals into the pool for digestion. Only when the last flickers of resistance have been extinguished does the final stage of the invasion begin. The hive ships gather in low orbit, clustering around vast capillary towers like ticks fastening to the flesh of cattle. Here they feed upon the accumulated biomass of the slaughtered world, and of their own dead alike, as it is pumped up the towers to be devoured. Ruthlessly ravenous, the tyranid swarms break down defensive structures and towering mountains for the minerals that can be extracted from within. They drain the world's oceans dry, leaving barren plains of cracked bedrock in their place. Every last scrap of organic life, down to the bacteria level, is devoured. At the end, even the world's atmosphere is plundered, its protective cow torn away and scattered into the void. By the time the hive ships rise once more into the cold expanse of space and prepare to move on, nothing remains of the prey world but a cold, dead husk. The Living Arsenal Tyranid weaponry and war gear is entirely organic. Some examples, such as heavy carapaces of chitinous armor, chameleonic flesh, or spore-spewing gas bladders, are integral to the warrior organisms that deploy them on the hunt. The rest appear to be grown in the churning innards of the hive ships, and symbiotically grafted to the bioforms that will wield them. Tyranid warrior organisms and their living weaponry make for a repulsive and frightening sight. It is hard for their enemies to perceive where the war beast ends and its armaments begin where the two are inextricably linked via pulsing tubules, chitinous growths, and membranous swathes of melted flesh. Few can fail to miss the vicious fangs and talons that almost all tyranids boast, nor the slime-slick and quivering analogs of gun or blade that most carry. Yet in truth, any part of a warrior organism's anatomy may prove a weapon. From sacks of virulent toxins or corrosive bioacids to fleshy barbs ready to stab forth and impale prey. Or other, even stranger and more gruesome weapons. For those not trained in identifying such threats and counteracting them, a myriad of horrible fates await. Many warriors have met their end after believing they had severed a tyranid's weapon from its body, or after parrying an obvious blow from a chitinous blade, only to be impaled upon the concealed stingers, struck by tailborne bioweapons, or enmeshed in lashing nests of secondary tendrils. In truth, the distinction between Tyranids and their war gear only exists within the minds of prey species, 
for every Tyranid is as much a living weapon as the symbiotes it wields. Moreover, the utterly alien nature and rapid adaptability of this organic technology is more than a match for even the most advanced prey races. It allows the Tyranids to drag their victims into a feverish arms race in which most prey are ill-equipped to keep pace, and that soon sees them outmatched, outmaneuvered, and fatally outnumbered. Kraken, Second Tyrannic War Following the defeat of High Fleet Behemoth, some Imperial observers believed the Tyranid threat over. Humanity has outlived countless such Xenos threats, they pointed out, each destructive in their own right, yet ultimately minor in the grand scheme of the wider Imperium. Several centuries passed before this assumption was proved the worst sort of foolish optimism. The onset of the second Tyranid invasion, which would subsequently be named High Fleet Kraken, was subtle and insidious. This new High Fleet divided its strength amongst many separate tendrils. This allowed Kraken to assail many planetary systems all at once, and also spread the shadow and the warp across a much wider area of space. As a result, it took a long while for word of the invasion to reach Imperial authorities. Many worlds were devoured during that delay. Once the Imperial counterattack began and the Second Tyrannic War was officially declared, humanity discovered the true nature of this new threat. High Fleet Kraken was a wily ambush predator sought ever to encircle, outflank, and surprise its prey. Vanguard organisms swarmed before it, destabilizing worlds with acts of surreptitious slaughter and sabotage. Tunneling organisms undermined human defense lines, slipping past especially formidable points of resistance to attack from unexpected quarters. Kraken attacked on more fronts than the Imperium could defend, forcing its prey to sacrifice lower priority worlds and systems in order to protect more strategically vital locations. All the while, the pale hides of Crimson Chitin of High Fleet Kraken was sighted in more and more systems, and the armies of humanity could do little but retreat before the alien invaders. A number of space marine chapters sprung to the fore during this desperate fighting retreat. Their valor was undeniable, as was their success in wounding and slowing the advancing threat of the Hive Fleet. Yet their defiance cost the space marines dear. The scythes of the Emperor and the Lamenters were both mauled terribly, driven to the brink of extinction, while the Knights of Eternity chapter 
was wiped out altogether. The decisive battle against Kraken came when the High Fleet drew its greatest tendrils together and drove them toward the Hive world of Ikar IV. No one has been able to determine why the High Fleet's behavior changed, but it was in this moment that Imperial commanders had a chance to score a decisive victory over the rapacious Xenos. The Tyranids deployed many previously unseen warrior organisms during the grinding and bloody conflict that followed, even unleashing Bio-Titans for the first time. Yet it was the chapter master Marnius Kalgar who led the fight back, arriving on Ikar IV at the head of a mighty Ultramarine's force and coordinating a masterful defense that finally saw the Xenos scoured from the planet's surface and the surrounding void. High Fleet Kraken had been decisively defeated, albeit at the cost of Ikar IV's ruination. Yet with dozens of splinter fleets and lesser tendrils still scattered, it was far from a spent force. Leviathan, Third Tyrannic War Only years after the defeat of High Fleet Kraken at Ikar IV, High Fleet Leviathan drove its tendrils up through the galactic plane. The largest and most widespread High Fleet to date, Leviathan showed clear signs of having learned from the fates of Behemoth and Kraken. Its swarms continue to pose an all-pervading threat to life in the galaxy. By the time of High Fleet Leviathan's invasion, numerous other lesser High Fleets had been recognized as threats by the Imperium. Some were splinters of Behemoth or Kraken. Others were entirely separate and strangely adapted entities in their own right. Many, once Leviathan began its onslaught, moved to support, shelter behind, or even parasitize the largest of high fleets yet known. Leviathan's swarms were legion, its tendrils spread out so that no corner of the galaxy was safe from the Tyranid menace. Imperial forces who survived the onslaught of Leviathan reported an alarming upsurge in the number of Psyker analog warrior organisms amongst its ranks. The synaptic network that linked this high fleet appeared especially powerful. Its shadow in the warp, smothering, and tremendously potent. Here was the Tyranid threat writ, larger and more terrible than ever before. Great armies, even entire Xenos races, fled before its inexorable advance. Amongst the first Imperial war leaders to take the fight to High Fleet Leviathan was Inquisitor Kripman. Believing the ends justified any means, the aged Inquisitor employed every resource he had amassed 
in his long and bloody career. He unleashed a wave of exterminatus strikes upon worlds in the path of Leviathan's tendrils. Cripman reasoned that if enough planets could be rendered lifeless in the path of the swarm, the Tyranids would be starved and their onslaught slowed. His horrific methods met with some success, but they were too much even for his Machiavellian peers. Trillions of Imperial lives had been lost to Cripman's purge. He was accused of heretical arrogance and declared excommunicate traitorous. Yet Cribman was not done. He next engineered the release of a brood of captured gene stealers within the bounds of the Orc Empires of Octarius. Sure enough, a tendril of High Fleet Leviathan was drawn after the synaptic signal of the brood, plowing into the Greenskin's empire and igniting a ferocious war. Gripman had hoped the Xenos would annihilate one another. However, he was mistaken. Untold numbers of Greenskins provided the Tyranids with a nigh-inexhaustible supply of biomass that saw their swarms grow daily. The orcs, meanwhile, thrive upon battle. In the Tyranids, they found the fight of their lives. Larger and more belligerent greenskins were reported all the time by the outmatched Imperial forces caught up amidst the alien war. Soon enough, the fighting in the Octarian Empire threatened to spill out across neighboring Imperial sectors. Hoping to stem the tide before it reached critical mass, Inquisitor Nasser Sahansan and many of his comrades sought to establish a defense line, the Cordon Impenetra, that would contain the tumultuous Xenos War. Yet their containment wall was far from complete by the time Tyranid and Orc forces assailed it. The situation grew more grave by the day. This was but one example of the multitudinous catastrophic war zones that erupted wherever High Fleet Leviathan struck. The Shrine World of St. Caspelin was transformed into an abattoir by the combined efforts of tunneling horrors and the insidious stealth organism known as Death Leaper. Here was proof that faith alone, no matter how fervent, was no defense against this terror from the outer dark. Battlefleet Ultima lost more ships than they could afford during the Battle of Bloodstar, their captains discovering too late that the hive mind had learned much of ambush tactics since they had last battled its swarms. The mighty forge world of Griffon IV also fell to the tendrils of High Fleet Leviathan, all of its precious knowledge lost to the devouring maws of unthinking beasts. The systems of Pyrehaven, Ninth Gift, Josmire's Rest, and Abdrala all fell silent and dark, 
their last cries warning of tyranids attacking from the far reaches of the Segmentum Obscurus to the heartlands of the Segmentum Solar. It was even as the flames of the Third Tyrannic War raged higher that the Great Rift tore open. This calamitous chain of warp storms split the Imperium in two, leaving fully half the Emperor's realm cut off from the Astronomicon. Such lost and darkened systems were easy prey for Leviathan. Even those worlds fortunate enough to remain within the Emperor's light were battered by demonic phenomena, plagues of mutation and catastrophic collapses in communication and coordination. Everywhere, High Fleet Leviathan surged forward, taking advantage of mankind's confusion as a lunging predator into the midst of a panicked and scattered prey beasts. Yet, the hive mind did not have things all its own way. Though the bedlam caused by the Great Rift aided it in many ways, it also saw vast swathes of the galaxy plunged into maelstroms of empiric madness or overrun by malevolent warp entities. Such beings offer no sustenance to the swarm, and so High Fleet Leviathan was forced to adopt new methods for fighting these inimical hosts before they starved it of biomass by slaughtering or tainting its prey beyond consumption. In this way, the hive mind inadvertently joined the fight against chaos, albeit entirely for its own sake, while still devouring all prey races that crossed its path. <laughs>